Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's story occurred in the year 1876, but what else happened that year? Well, on the 24th of February, the first stage production of the verse play Pierre Gint by Henrik Ibsen premieres with incidental music by Edvard Grieg in Oslo, which was then called Christiania, in Norway. On the 7th of March, Alexander Graham Bell is granted a United States patent for the telephone. And on March the 10th, he makes the first successful telephone call, saying, Mr Watson, come here, I want to see you. On May the 18th, Wyatt Earp starts work in Dodge City, Kansas, serving under Marshal Larry Deager. And on August the 2nd, Wild Bill Hickok is murdered in Deadwood, South Dakota. Hickok was shot and killed while playing poker in a saloon by Jack McCall, an unsuccessful gambler. The hand of cards which he supposedly held at the time of his death has become known as the dead man's hand. Two pairs, black aces and eights. But today we're going to the evening of Saturday the 1st of April where Mr R. Biggs, the deputy coroner for Somersetshire, held an inquest at the White Hart pub in Brisington on the body of John Chiddy, a foreman quarryman aged 47 who lived in Hannam. He had died heroically, preventing a major catastrophe from happening and saving over a hundred lives. Word of the Week Brace yourselves for today, I give you... Nagware. Now, Nagware is computer software which is free for a trial period. But after that, it frequently reminds you, the user, to pay for it. From the evidence presented at the inquest, it appeared that John Chiddy was the foreman at the Birchwood Quarry, situated between Tunnels 2 and 3 at Brislington, a site rented by the Great Western Railway Company to Mr Bladwell of Bath. In those days, it was customary for the quarrymen and stonemasons employed at the quarry 
to prepare blocks of stone for building purposes, and when the stone was finished, they would stack them alongside the railway line, about six feet from the rails and on the other side of a two-foot-high wall. These stones would be used by the railway company to construct various buildings along the line, and having them near the tracks was really convenient for loading them onto the trucks. On that fateful day, the stack was much higher than the wall, and John was busy with a stack of stone near the line. It's not known whether the block of stone fell from his barrow or rolled off the stack nearby, but it was about the size of a man's hat and had settled itself on the metal of the downline. It was then that John Chiddy saw the famous Flying Dutchman Express hurtling down the line at speeds of about 50 miles an hour. It was obvious that the train was in extreme danger and John, regardless of his own safety, jumped down onto the line and seized the stone to carry it off. But before he could get clear, the engine was upon him. The Flying Dutchman was running along a ledge high above the River Avon, and had it become derailed, if John hadn't saved it, it would most certainly have plunged right into the river with a considerable loss of life. A witness who gave formal evidence said that the men at the quarry were accustomed to running across the line to and fro from their work. The coroner thought this a dangerous practice, at that particular spot as it was a narrow gorge between two tunnels on a bend. William Ledbourne, the driver in charge of the Flying Dutchman, said it had left Bath on time and was coming out of what was known as Number 3 Tunnel and his engine struck John between Number 2 and Number 3 Tunnel. The fireman, George Torboy, saw John, but the driver didn't. The driver said that even if he had seen John before he had left the tunnel, He could not have prevented the accident at the speed he was going. It all happened so fast that he didn't even know anything about it until the fireman told him he'd run over someone and he stopped as quickly as possible at the end of number one tunnel within half a mile. The driver, William Ledbourne, told the signalman about the situation and sent a group of men back down the line. They found the remains of John Chiddy on the tracks. During the inquest, the coroner asked William Ledbourne, the driver, You were the driver of one of the fastest trains in the world, are you not? The fastest, sir. It was a very confined space between the two tunnels, and it was not wise for men to cross the line there if it could be avoided at any rate without keeping watch. It was a most dangerous place for anyone to go on the line or trespass there. It was at this point that Mr Lydiard, who was at the inquest with Mr Neve of Cainsham Station on behalf of the company, said in reply to the coroner that men working on the line were obliged to cross it. The coroner said that these men were not connected with the railway and so were therefore not provided with timetables or accustomed to the restrictions as were the men in the railway company's employment. George Torboy, the fireman, told the inquest that as the train was coming out of the tunnel, he saw the deceased jump down onto the line to take off a block of stone that was lying on the track of the downline. The man had no time to move out of the way when an engine was upon him.
During the inquest, the coroner voiced his opinion that he thought it astonishing that the practice of stacking stones along the line with the possibility of one falling onto the track should continue. In that particular case, the deceased had only two choices, either to leave the stone where it was at great risk to the train or risk his life in removing it. John had bravely chosen the latter. The fireman, George Torboy, said that he believed that the guard on the front of the engine would have been able to push aside a stone three times the size of the one he saw. But without hesitation, the coroner pointed out... It might do so for 99 times, but failed to do so perhaps a 100th time with a shocking calamity as the result. As a traveller, I would certainly feel much more comfortable if I knew that there was not the chance of a stone of that size getting on the line before such a train as that. The company representative, Mr Lydiard, said that any suggestions which the coroner or jury would make would be laid down before the proper people and receive every consideration. Book of the Week This week's book is A Tomb with a View, The Stories and Glories of Graveyards by Peter Ross. And anyone who shares Ross's view that graveyards are parks for introverts will adore this book, as indeed will anyone who likes microhistory. Ross gives a personal tour of interesting burial places, gravestones and monuments. He's clearly fascinated by his subject matter and conveys that enthusiasm to his readers. Peter Ross spent some considerable time travelling across Britain and Ireland, wandering around graveyards, talking to those who visit them, those who work in them, going on tours and gathering stories as he went. I'd highly recommend this book to taphophiles, romantic historians and anybody interested in the places where the dead live and the people who live in them. In the news today, a man went to a beekeeper to get 12 bees and as he counted, he realised he was given 13. He said, Sir, you gave me an extra. The beekeeper said, that's a freebie. In the summing up at the end of the inquest, the coroner said that there was no blame whatsoever on the train driver, who was exhibiting proper care and skill in the management of the engine. But as the case had proceeded, his opinion was more and more strengthened that some stringent regulation was needed to prevent these stones from getting on the tracks. John Chiddy had seen these trains pass by every day and considered there was a danger, otherwise he wouldn't have made the ultimate sacrifice. It was therefore incumbent upon those in authority to see that the danger should be removed. The jury concurred and Mr Lydiard promised that attention would be given to the matter. The jury returned a verdict that John Chitty was accidentally killed by being run over by the express train. At the end of the proceedings, the jury each gave their fees to the widow, Elizabeth, aged 47, who had seven children at the time. Sarah, James, Ellen, Annie, Lorna, Elizabeth and Alice. With seven children, 
the death of the main breadwinner was devastating on Elizabeth, the widow. Lord Elko took the lead in addressing the situation to help John Chitty's family. He told the House of Commons in August 1876 that an initial call for donations raised only £3.17 shillings. He said that if a man risked his life to save others, he should do so with the consciousness that his family would not be dependent on charity or the workhouse. In reply, the Chancellor of the Exchequer explained that he had no funds to help such people. The ensuing press publicity, however, resulted in an account being opened in Bath and another in Bristol, the Bank of England contributing £10 when informed that two of its officials were on the train with a large quantity of gold. Had John been a soldier or a sailor and died saving the lives of others, his bravery would have been recognised publicly. He would have even received the Victoria Cross or the Albert Medal. But at that time, there was no provision for the widows and children of civilians who, like John Chitty, risked and lost their lives in their daring and noble efforts to save the lives of others. In regards to compensation to families in such cases as John Chitty's, other countries had different ways of dealing with it. In Germany, for instance, there was a sum of 50,000 put aside to meet cases where civilians had lost their lives in trying to avert great calamities. This money would be given out to widows and children who had lost their only means of support. In a letter to the Times, Mr G.S. Baker writes about the incident. He risked his life in his endeavour to save the express. The train and its passengers were saved, but I think, sir, such intrepidity and heroism evinced in a poor labouring man should not be allowed to pass unnoticed. Surely those who were in the train cannot refuse a trifle to the family of one to whom, after God, they owe their lives. In the end, a total of £400 was raised and used to purchase half an acre of land on which a six-bedroomed memorial cottage was built in what is now Memorial Road on the Hallam Bank of the Avon, which was called Pitt Lane. The building still stands today close to Hannam School in Memorial Road. The north side of the house carries a plaque with the inscription Erected AD 1877 by public subscription for the widow and family of John Chitty, who was killed by an express train whilst removing a large stone from the metals of the Great Western Railway near Connor, March 31st, 1876. John Chitty is buried in Christchurch Graveyard in Hannam, and in 2011, Year 3 pupils at Hannam Abbotts Primary School thought that he should have a proper headstone, and after many years of tracing descendants of John and raising funds, a special ceremony took place at Christchurch in Hannam in July of 2018. The Hannam Local History Society organised everything and even contacted all known descendants of John Chidi resulting in many attending the ceremony.
It's the Dad in a Rock podcast. This is Sean. And this is Chris. Join us every week as we give you the dad's point of view on pop culture. And stumbling our way through fatherhood. <laughs> dad jokes. Star Wars. Streaming. Tech news. Movie news. Listen to lifelong pals tell stories from past and present. Cruise with us into the cheesy every week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast platforms. And as always, find past episodes and links to our social media pages on dadnarock.com. Now, did you enjoy today's tale? A huge thank you has to go out to Roy Crew from the Hannam Local History Society, as well as those from the Kingswood Museum, who first told me about John Chitty and then helped me with the research. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 11th of September in 1942, when Enid Blyton publishes Five on a Treasure Island, first of her famous five children's novels, and the start of one of the best-selling children's series ever, with over a hundred million sold. Blyton intended to only write six or eight books in the series, but owing to their high sales and immense commercial success, she went on to write 21 full-length, famous five novels, as well as a number of other series in similar style following groups of children discovering crime on holiday. By the end of 1953, more than six million copies had been sold. It was Blyton's publisher, Hodder and Stoughton, who first used the term The Famous Five in 1951, after nine books in the series had been published. Before this, the series was referred to as The Fives Books. On September 12, 1624, the banks of the Thames were crowded with 3,000 spectators. Even King James I stood in observation. Everyone was craning their necks for a glimpse of the first submarine, a steerable, pigskin-covered wooden frame that was capable of carrying 16 passengers. Six oars propelled the watercraft forward. The submarine could stay submerged for up to three hours at a maximum depth of 12 to 15 feet. During the first demonstration of his submarine, King James went for a ride. On the 13th of September, 1501, Michelangelo begins work on his Statue of David, a masterpiece of Renaissance sculpture. Also on the 13th, but in 1845, English chemist Michael Faraday discovers the Faraday effect, the influence of a magnetic field on polarised light. On the 14th of September, 1936, after practising for a few weeks on cadavers, the first frontal lobotomy in the US was performed on 63-year-old Alice Hood Hammett, a housewife from Kansas who was believed to be suffering from anxiety and depression. The process then involved drilling holes in Hammett's skull over the left and right frontal lobes. They then inserted a narrow shaft through the hole on the left side into the exposed part of the brain. An hour later, the whole thing was declared a success, even though Hammett suffered a convulsion in the weeks following the surgery. She died five years later, although she managed to spend the last years of her life away from mental institutions. On the 14th of September in 1968, while he was on tour in the UK, Roy Orbison's house in Nashville burnt down with his two sons inside. 
and on the 15th of September 1990, the Steve Miller Band had a UK number one with The Joker, 16 years after its first release. And that brings us to the end of our Back in the Day facts. Now I have to say a huge thank you to the people who really bring the stories to life and make me look good in the process. And today we had Joe Wilson, Colin Ball and Steve Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio. I'd also like to send a special thank you to the Hanham Local History Society, in particular Roy Crew. This society produced a video and had the broken gravestone of John Chiddy replaced. It's societies like this that help keep the stories from our local past alive and well. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>